Hello and welcome to the Sapien Podcast, a project that explores entrepreneurship, innovation, and personal development. I'm your host, Marco Vega, and on today's episode, we'll be speaking with Devin Fritz. He is a managing director of Germany and CTO of Founders Pledge. Founders Pledge is an organization that encourages startup founders to pledge away a percentage of their company as donations for high impact charities. In this episode, I talked to Devin about how Founders Pledge works and how they motivate startup founders to sign up to the pledge. We also discuss how Founders Pledge determines which charities are considered to be high impact and why they tend to focus on poverty reduction, animal welfare, and global catastrophic risk. Finally, we talk about the relationship between meaning, happiness, and helping others. After a certain point, money doesn't appear to make you happier, and so helping others is an excellent recipe for improving one's own well-being. Devin is originally from Poughkeepsie, New York. He has a decade of experience working in the private sector as a software engineer which included offering IT consulting to the US government. In 2010, he was a CEO of CineSync, an independent contractor for the development of custom web applications. But Devin has always had a passion for philosophy and in figuring out ways to make the world a better place. So in 2017, he joined Founders Pledge, an organization geared towards raising funds from entrepreneurs and giving them to high impact charities upon exit. We are live. Hey, Devin. Hey, Marco. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Feeling pretty refreshed. It's early in the morning here. Yeah, I a good start to the day. It's finally getting sunny in Berlin, huh? It's true. It's the we're coming out of the six-month hibernation phase, which is always a great time to be in Berlin, yeah. right on the cusp of uh, the good weather. But it's a month too early. Doesn't that worry you? <laughs> yeah, but there, I guess you have to enjoy the benefits. I mean, I can't change the rest of it, so <laughs> might as well enjoy the warmth. <laughs> All right. Um, so my first question today, what is Founders Pledge? Pretend, pretend I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, so Founders Pledge is an, a charitable organization. Uh, started in London about three and a half, four years ago. Don't remember exactly. Um, and basically the goal of Founders Pledge is to get startup founders to donate money um, that they make from their startups to effective charities. So this has kind of two parts for us. Um, we're really interested in getting people to donate money where they otherwise wouldn't have. Um, so getting more money in the charitable sector, getting people to take the charitable sector more seriously. And then secondly, not just donating money, but donating money um, to effective charities. So. Part of what we do is we have a big research team that researches what are the most effective interventions in the world, and then we present that to our members and try to get them to donate to those charities and think about them as, as good interventions. Sort of a good bang for their buck is kind of a, a way to think about it if you were in the private sector. So just, you know, you have one dollar, how are you going to do the most good with that dollar? So, And how do you figure that out? I mean... Well, the research team um, uses what's called an ITN framework. So they look at these, these three letters, ITN, so uh, what's important, what's tractable, and what's neglected as kind of a basis for figuring out what, what's a good uh, intervention. So just as a simple example, you can borrow some theories from economics like marginal utility, 
So this is the general principle, like if you if you eat one hamburger, you're probably pretty happy. But if you eat the 10th hamburger, you're, you're less happy because the, the gain you get out of each additional hamburger is less and less until the point where it makes you sick. And so there's the similar uh, argument to be made in the charitable sector that uh, every marginal dollar that a, an organization gets, they can do less good with, they're less happy with. So to, to, to carry the analogy over. And so that's one uh, kind of aspect we would look at. Um, so, so what does that mean in practice? Do you like give the minimum amount necessary to a bunch of different organizations so that they get the most marginal returns? So we try to look at which, um, what, I mean, this is just one aspect of what we do, I should reiterate, but mm-hmm. um, we try to look at, for example, is an area underfunded? So like uh, maybe a big cancer research center wouldn't be on our list, even if cancer is important, because they already have all the funding they need to continue. You see this a lot with actually natural disasters. Even though they're horrible, um, a lot of money flows in and a lot of the organizations don't even know what to do with the the money. They don't have the resources uh, to to use that money effectively. Whereas other organizations are maybe just starting up, um, have a good track record, but nonetheless uh, have a funding gap. And so we'd, all other things being equal, prioritize somebody who uh, had that funding gap. Okay. So, so there's two parts of Founders Pledge. The first is you find entrepreneurs or potential uh, founders and you persuade them to give a percentage of their their income, their their, their, their company. That, that, that's the first part, right? And the mm-hmm. second part is you try and find impactful organizations and that's where you give them money later. Is that right? Is that the two? Yeah, in broad strokes, those are, those are two of the big things we do. Um, we also, <clears throat> once somebody joins our community, the member um, gets invited to dinners, they can network with other uh, members or even potential people that haven't pledged with us yet, but uh, we'd like to have in our network. We have these dinners that have both of these people. We have dinners that just have people who've pledged. And this also um, helps the member to, one, network with other people in their community who are also thinking about effective charities, and two, to learn about effective charities. We often have uh, speakers from effective charities who talk about what they do. We have dinners that uh, involve our research team where we talk about intrinsic values that people have and, and thinking about how can I do the most good in the world. So so there are other other things aside from just the donation process. It's really, mm-hmm. we think about it as a journey. You pledge with us, that's the start of the process. And then after that point, you're, you're involved with this journey of effectiveness and learning about uh, effective charities. That's interesting. So how many, uh, what do you call them, pledges? Is that the right term? Members. Members. How many members do you currently have? I, I don't know exactly, but we have something around a thousand at this point over the course of the past four years, something like that. Yeah, and they're spread across the UK where we started, as I mentioned, and the US uh, where we have more and more now. We have an office in New York and San Francisco, so mostly in, in those two places, um, which you think of as tech hubs in the US anyway, and then um, in continental Europe as well. Uh, across across all the the major cities in in continental Europe, and then we're thinking of expanding to maybe India. We have some some people there who are interested, and so yeah, hopefully this is a, a worldwide thing eventually. And that the the default thought of a startup founder is, oh, founders pledges out there. I want to do something good, or maybe they found a social impact startup um, instead of like a, a traditional tech startup or, or something, so that people across the world think about. Um, doing good and maybe even gearing their business in that direction yeah and so these members they they pledge they don't give you money immediately is that what i've understood they they yeah that's right promise something in the future that's right so we target that and that's a good point we target members or we target startup founders who've not yet exited 
um, which means that essentially they've sold their business to another business or they've gone on the stock market and gotten money for their for their venture. And so it turns out um, people are more apt to to sign this pledge if they if it's hypothetical money because they, <laughs> they don't really know where they're going to land. Um, if you if you approach somebody who's already rich and say like you want to donate some of your money to charity, they're kind of like eh, yeah maybe maybe I'll do it. I don't know. It's it's for some reason the equation is quite different. But before you've made the money, people are much more likely to think, okay, yeah, well, there's a good argument to be made if, if the company fails, which a lot of startups do, they don't know anything because it's not an absolute amount of money, it's relative to how much they make. And if they become absurdly rich, uh, what's 3%? <laughs> you, you still have the 97% or whatever whatever percentage you, you want to give. Um, yeah, so, so that is the way we do it. That's interesting. And, and just, just out of curiosity, why do you think that is true? Like, why... You know, have you tried pitching something like this to people who have already made the money? We have, yeah. And I think originally, the original conception was to, to do it this way. And the success rate was just a lot lower. And as to why, I can only speculate. But I think it has to do with this sort of... Almost like when you picture yourself in the future and you're like, yeah, I'm definitely going to go to the gym. Uh, it, it, one year from now, I'm going to go three times a week. It's going to be easy. <laughs> and I'm going to eat well and all these things. And then in the real world, it, it's hard when you're mixed up. In it. And, and, and in any given week, you probably don't go three times because it's just harder for you, this sort of short-term, long-term thinking. And I think rationally, people, when they project in the future, they're like, yeah, of course, like that's the right decision. That's what's good for me, ultimately. <laughs> but then when you're in the moment and you have all that money, maybe you're like, uh, I don't know, you know, you get involved in those sorts of troubling thoughts. But rationally, <laughs> rationally I think this is what people no, want to do. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and when they do make the money, yeah, they... they, they Follow their promises. Is that is that? Yeah, across the board, people have okay. uh, have donated when they've when they've had a so-called exit, um, and people are psyched to do so. Honestly, uh, it's not something we have to like chase people for or or say like, uh, nobody wants to back out. They're they're excited to work with us, which has re- really been great. Okay, yeah. you've never had a case of a, a no, never, okay. never. How oh, interesting. Yeah. So so what does what does the process look like? I mean, how do you find these 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 members? How do you, you know, what, what exactly do you do? As, you know, what is your job, your role? Is your role looking for new members to pledge? So my specific role, it doesn't have to do as much with getting people to pledge, but is more on the technical side of things. So I'm the CTO of the, the global organization, so across all of our different offices. Um, we do have an office here in Berlin. But I do more operations uh, things here, dealing with um, lawyers and accountants and, and the charitable organization. Yeah, so op- just operations is a good way to describe it. But in terms of how we get new members, we have a team in the UK and a team in the US who are responsible for this. And usually it works through our network. So we don't do a lot of, we don't do like Facebook ads or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no sort of advertising in the traditional sense. Um, more just expanding our network through members who are advocates for us, of which there are quite many. So what it would look like in practice is we say, hey, member, (laughs) um, it would be great if you hosted a dinner with your friends uh, at your apartment in an intimate setting and and your startup friends who might be interested in Founders Pledge and we can just chat about what it means. Um, And then we do so in, in different cities and that works out pretty well. So we have quite a lot of people who get interested through that and then our network just kind of grows naturally because people are excited about the idea. So it doesn't sound like it takes a lot of persuading then. I mean, once someone's found you through the network 
is it quite a quick eager process I guess it depends on the person but yeah we have pretty good we have pretty good rates of success so like uh, I don't have numbers offhand but I, I think something like a third to a half of the people who go to a, an event that we have whether it be a dinner at somebody's house or a dinner at a restaurant with uh, more potential people that we don't know um, we have pretty good success rates ultimately of getting people to sign the pledge yeah and you said you have a base in Germany so what's it Germany the UK and the US is that right it's yep that's right okay have you had like an even success across three countries um, so it depends if you define success as like absolute pledge value then probably the US is in the lead mm-hmm. um, and then the UK and then Germany and con- we think about not so much Germany but continental Europe more broadly And this is mostly attributable to the the size of the startups in the relative places. I mean, the U.S. just has um, startups that are in in another league. um, And the valuations are, I mean, when you think of all the big companies, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Instagram, all these things, they're all U.S. companies. And so if you get somebody there to pledge, even just a small percentage, um, you you have a much bigger win in terms of absolute pledge value than in other places. So it's not about the number of people willing to pledge. It's really about the size of the exits in the U.S. relative to Europe. That's right. That's right. Yeah, because at the end of the day, what we want to do is we want the most money to go to the most effective charities. Um, And so for us, it's not really a numbers game in terms of how many people pledge. Of course, we want to get that number as high as we can, but that's not the best marker for for how much money goes to effective charities and how much we, good we do in the world. Like you could imagine we have 20,000 tiny, tiny companies who have really small valuations. Mm-hmm. That would be not as effective ultimately as one huge organization whose yeah, total amount of money that went to charity was greater than those whatever number. I said 20,000 tinier companies. Yeah. Have, you know, we're both in Germany now. Have you seen any cultural differences in terms of either how people approach uh, your work at Founders Pledge in Germany as startups in Germany versus startups in England or the US. Um, Is the psychology different related to giving? Uh, I'd be hard-pressed to generalize and I wouldn't want to like make a broad claim about everybody in Germany but it does seem like it's been a bit more difficult in Germany I think Um, and again I'm not you know I'm not claiming this is a fact but it seems like uh, German founders in general think more that the the government, they've already paid quite a lot of taxes to the government compared to people in the U.S. And maybe in the U.S. there's more of an independent mentality of like, I'm going to do what I want with my money. Whereas the German mentality seems to be more in general that, yeah, I've paid a lot of taxes to the government and the government should be the arbiter of uh, of where that money ultimately goes. And so I think that's been a bit of a, a... like put the brakes on Germany a bit for us. Um, it's been harder to get people to, to sign the pledge in Germany for that reason, I think. Um, another reason seems to be that the <clears throat> the length of time between when somebody knows about us and when they sign the pledge is a bit longer. I think German people, again, in broad strokes, are um, more careful when reading our pledge agreement and making sure that everything's uh, kosher and they talk to their lawyer about it and they talk to their partner about it and things like that. So that's made the sales cycle a bit slower. But aside from that, um, I don't think there are any major differences between Germany, the US, the UK, and then continental Europe more broadly. Yeah. Interesting. Let's talk a bit more about um, the, the, the second side of the equation here. So, so you've mentioned the term effective charities a few times. Um, 
can you give me an example? What, what are these effective charities uh, and, and why did you pick them specifically? Sure. So um, <clears throat> how we usually approach things is we, we have broad charitable areas that we think are particularly impactful. Um, an example of this is global poverty. Um, there are still a lot of people across the world that are destitute and in absolute poverty. Um, and you can think about poverty in a lot of different ways. And there are people probably poor. I mean, we see it in Berlin all the time. There are people in the, in the trains that are, you can tell are homeless and are begging for money. You, you can see it in every area of the world probably. Um, but we think, for example, that giving money to Africa is probably more effective going back to what I mentioned before about marginal utility. A dollar in Africa gets you way more than it does in a so-called rich Western uh, country like Germany or the UK or the US where I'm from. Um, and so you get a lot more money in the poverty sector in a place like Africa in general, all other things being equal. So to answer your question, we... For global poverty, we usually rely on the work of an organization that we really recommend called GiveWell, who, who vets charities in the global poverty space and um, tries to yeah tries to figure out what the best interventions are in the world f- for poverty. And so one specific example is uh, GiveDirectly. And this is an intervention started by somebody named Michael Fay in the U.S., and basically, the intervention is give people money directly. They, 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 yeah, it's all in the name, right? People know what they need. Um, people know what to do with their next dollar. And uh, for the past hundred years or so, uh, countries in the West have been giving, they, they've come up with all these theories about what people in Africa need. How are we going to solve poverty in Africa? Oh, they need sheep. Oh, they need mm-hmm. uh, fishing nets or something. And um, we kind of figure out what they need for them and then just deliver it to them without actually being on the ground and thinking about what they need. And so right, the argument yeah. is basically people know what they need. So just uh, give them the money and let them decide. Sort of, a, I guess, a more libertarian type argument. And the the crucial point about this is that Give Directly has been measuring what they do. And they, they've actually let it be measured by an outside third party organization. And the results are really great. So it seems measured like... Measured in terms of... How much poverty alleviation the program has? I don't know the exact metrics, but they look at things like education levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're doing a long-term study now. They're doing like a universal basic income in Kenya and Uganda, I think, and uh, they're going to look at like salaries down the, down the road and uh, yeah, different things that seem like good proxies for getting out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the results have been really great, and it's, it's a great baseline for other charities to be. So the argument's kind of like, if you can't prove your charity does better than give directly, give to give directly. <laughs> and I think that's a great way to think about things. Interesting. Which brings up uh, another point I wanted to make, which is that, you know, in the private sector, things are really... People run a tight ship because um, if you go to the mall and you want to buy a computer, let's say, um, and you look at... you can't, you're, you look at the different deals and you make a decision based on the best price and you and you're the recipient of the you're the beneficiary of that purchase and so um and the, and the private and the private company has to make a, a profit so they're very incentivized to uh to run a tight ship and give you the best product uh at the best price whereas in the charitable sector uh these two elements are not there in general the company or the organization doesn't have to make a profit and the person buying the 
the charitable act, so like somebody donating money essentially, isn't the recipient, isn't the beneficiary. So they don't have the same incentive to make sure that they're they're doing as much good as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and give directly, I think, is getting rid of both of these both of these issues um, and setting up like a, a higher baseline for charities so that they operate more like private companies and have the right incentive structures to uh and the incentive structures aligned because you're measuring the output i take it because it's not like no i I appreciate the entrepreneurial spirit of giving people money directly investing Mm -hmm. in them and they make the choices that they want because presumably they 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 know their own needs the the most but they're not exactly giving you something in return you know and if you sell a computer i take the computer i give you my money I am the customer and, and you know, I'm giving you something that I run myself. In, in the case of a charity or, or in GiveDirectly, um, the person receives the money and then doesn't necessarily give a transaction back in return. So, so uh, the way you say you solve the misalignment is by measuring the output, is that? Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess <clears throat> there's, still the, um, there's still the issue that the person donating isn't the beneficiary beneficiary in this case. Um, Hopefully through the work we do at Founders Pledge, for example, with getting people to think more about effectiveness, Mm -hmm. they're the beneficiary in the sense that if if part of your goal is to do the most good, then then you're getting that in return. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think normally that's not necessarily the goal that people have in mind. But but I think you're right. Um, that it still does suffer from this problem. It's it solves more of the other the other issue that the if I want to donate a dollar and I'm thinking about effectiveness and I look like and see Give Directly is doing really well and another charity I have absolutely no idea or they mm. or they did research and they found out they're they're performing worse than Give Directly. I'm going to give to Give Directly. So it really sets a good bar for for charities for the future. Yeah, and what I, what I like, you know, for, for anyone out there who espouses some libertarian values or even like believes in capitalist economics, the fact that you're adding competition between charities is an argument for increasing their efficiency or effectiveness. So in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> um, so so, so do, do, do most of the money that people pledge go to poverty reduction? Is that, is that, is that the most effective thing you can do with your money? Um, we have different areas that um, people give to. That's definitely one that is very accessible to people. It's a pretty straightforward argument. Um, but there are other areas as well. We uh, we give to animal charities. Um, there's a good argument to be made going back to this ITN framework that I mentioned before. So if something's important in terms of its relative size and the impact on the world, if it's tractable, if you can actually make progress with it, and if it's neglected, uh, if there isn't a lot of money going to it. Um, there's a good argument to be made f- uh, against factory farming. This affects billions of animals that suffer and um, and not a lot of money is going to it. If you look at, there, there are these interesting charts where something like 99% of all the money that goes into the animal uh, sector goes to local animal shelters, whereas the, the elephant in the room is really factory farming, which affects billions and billions of animals. Might even be, could be even a trillion with a T. Um, and so that would be another area that um, if somebody's interested in donating to, we have good solutions for that. And so basically, we the way we work with founders is we try to get them to to get at their underlying core values that they have because people have have differences here. We try to tease those out, and then no matter what they come up with, uh, we, we we hopefully have a, an effective solution for them. Okay, so so, yeah. so you don't define beforehand what the most effective charities are. You work with the member, the donor, 
and figure out what their values are, and then you give to those NGOs. Is that is that right? Um, yes and no. So we have a set of effective charities that we think are all great deals mm-hmm. across different charitable areas. Okay. And then no matter what somebody's uh, intrinsic values are, we we have a solution for them within those areas. So we'd ask a question like, how do you compare animal lives to human lives? Everybody has a different intuition here. Mm-hmm. The human life where some people think um, uh, an animal life is worth nothing compared to a human. So they'll, they'll probably give to a more like poverty mm-hmm human poverty charity but if somebody's like i don't know i think like one human's worth i don't know a hundred chickens or whatever it seems like a silly question but there there might be a real answer right right um then based on how they answer these questions we can come up with an answer maybe in the the animal sector or maybe it is still global poverty because they value humans you know humanity higher than that so Mm -hmm. yeah so so Really, the questions that we ask uh, try to tease these out, and then we have a good solution. And if we don't, we'd research in that area and try to figure out if there was something uh, effective in that area. Okay. Um, so, so what are the other areas? I'm just just curious to have a sense of what the landscape is of effective charities, uh, given the research you've done at your organization. So another one that we haven't touched upon is so-called existential risk. Um, this is the idea that basically it would be really, really bad if humanity got wiped out, <laughs> which doesn't seem controversial when you put it that way, but maybe uh, under the term existential I don't know, risk. I don't know, tease out my values here, you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the classic example in this case is climate change. If climate change, it turns out, wipes out the whole planet, um, that's, that's really bad. Not just for the people who are here now, but most people, most people, but not everybody have the intuition that it's also bad for people who aren't even around yet. So mm-hmm. like people think about their children, like what world am I going to bring my children into? A lot of people have this intuition and I think it's philosophically sound. So it's good that people have this. Um, and if you wipe out humanity, you wipe out presumably many, many generations in the future that would have had great conversations like the one we're having today (laughs) and just enjoyed all the good things in life. Um, And so we also take this area quite seriously. And so climate change would be one um, example of something that um, a lot of people are already thinking about. There are other things that uh, are more on the fringes, like biological warfare. It's easier than ever to order the ingredients to make uh, malaria or whatever disease you want. And that seems uh, that seems quite concerning. Yeah. 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 Order malaria online. No, you order the the parts and you can use CRISPR. You can like this gene editor. You can uh, with less and less information, just like with uh, computer skills these days. 40 years ago, it took a real, real expert to program, program a computer. Um, but now almost anybody can download a script that does X, Y, or Z, or, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people are understand computers more. The same thing is happening in biochemistry. And so people have more and more access to, to different tools that can, yeah, fundamentally change genetics. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. that has some broad implications. So just, I mean, this is just some, an area that some people are thinking about. It's probably good that some people are thinking about it. Um, yeah. And so just there's this broad area of uh, existential risks that uh, people are thinking about and, and seem like they have a good argument to, to at least consider mm-hmm. and at least have some people thinking about. So so, so if I want to become a pledger and uh, preventing the extinction of my species is hypothetically something I'm motivated to prevent, what, what do you do in practice? I mean, does this money just go to a bunch of researchers? Like what? How do you prevent existential risks? Or that's a tough question. Yeah, you know, just, just to clarify a bit, like it's obvious to me how you can alleviate poverty by giving directly. I, I can understand the mechanics there, but the existential risks—I don't have a, a clear, clear vision. 
Yeah, that's true. Um, and, and it is more speculative um, than global poverty, where we have a great answer. And this is actually another uh, intrinsic value that we ask our members. So like, what's your appetite for risk, essentially? Because some people want a very sure solution, and then you can give to give directly. And some people say like, no, I want to be more speculative with my with my donation. Um, and so this is uh, something we have to grapple with. But to answer your question, that yeah, it's very, very difficult to predict what your effects will be in the far future or even in the near future. I mean, mm. there's a lot of research that suggests that people can't even, experts in their fields can't predict what's going to happen a year out from now. If you, if you really sit them down and ask them to predict like, will um, North Korea send off a nuke in the next uh, year? What are the chances? People are really, really bad at this, even experts mm-hmm. in their field. And so it seems even harder to predict stuff in the far future. Mm-hmm. So you've touched upon what I think the real answer is, which is uh, research, depending on your timeline. I mean, climate change seems quite pressing, so we need solutions now. Mm-hmm. So maybe there we would be riskier than we otherwise would have been and, and try to implement things because uh, we're at the final hour, so to speak. But in other areas where we're less sure and it seems more speculative, it seems like in the case of uh, broad unknowns, you want to you wanna always go with research first to, to try to narrow down that uncertainty. Yeah. Maybe a background, like how did, how does someone wind up in the position that you're in? What's 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 that trajectory like? Yeah, sure. So um, I I grew up in New York. I studied in New York. I studied computer science. Uh, I had a very, I think, narrow view of the world back then, and I thought like, I'm going to get a job uh, programming, and I'm going to be there for 40 years, and I'm going to get married and have children. And <laughs> spoiler, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, spoiler. Yeah, that didn't happen. Um, yeah, and I, I worked at a really boring company. I didn't really think about what the company's goals were. I, I just worked at, I just thought about, okay, I, I have a solid living that I can make. And that was the important thing for me back then. And then over time, I worked at a few different organizations and I, I just felt like I wasn't having an impact on the world. And the sort of the money and the benefits of the job were getting better and better to the point where I felt like, okay, if I don't, if I don't quit now, I'm going to be stuck. In, <laughs> I'm going to be stuck in this forever because the incentives will just be too, too big to, uh, right. To say, so no you to. were worried that you'd make too much money to yeah. the point that you'd end up stuck doing something ineffective for the rest of your life. Yes. And quite boring. Also right. personally, it's not, okay. it wasn't just about the effectiveness, but also just about my meaning in the world. Right. Uh, I saw these four lifers uh, sitting there taking hour-long smoke breaks and just kind of, they looked dragged down and uh, it wasn't something I wanted to be a part of. So I kind of applied the brakes uh, quite quickly, left the, the organizations I had worked for and um, just kind of figured out what I wanted to do with, in the world. Um, and I took an exploratory phase, ended up moving over to Germany and thought more and more about um, this, this effectiveness aspect. And something that I always struggled with and still do a little bit to some degree is I always felt like, um, how do I put this? So I was always very philosophically oriented and my views changed quite drastically throughout my life as a result of philosophical inquiry. So for example, I've been all over the political spectrum. When I was 16, I thought I figured it out. When I was 18, I was like, no, stupid 16 year old, actually it's the world's this way. Then when 21, I had another fundamental shift and I always had creeping in the back of my mind, well, let's say I stopped at 16 and I decided um, to engage myself in, in, with a political party and really just go to protests and, and work for, I don't know, a senator in the US or something. Well, if I, if I stopped the inquiry then, I would have been working in the wrong direction for my whole life um, because I, it would be something that I ultimately would find wrong and presumably that's in, then in the wrong direction. And so I've always had this argument in my head of, 
well, if I stop at any given point, I might have one of the, I might forego one of these changes that would have totally changed the trajectory of the rest of my life, which was always an argument for me to, to learn more and kind of soak stuff up and figure out the arguments in my head, but not really put something back into the world. And, um, I felt like for the first time with Founders Pledge that I was able to do both of these things at the same time. I found a really strong, solid philosophical argument that I don't think I'm going to change about. And that I think and the if, philosophical if argument being what? The, 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 the giving or? Um, that doing the most good in the world is important. Okay. And at the same time, figuring out what that means. Okay. So like, I think it has both of these aspects of the philosophical, like what does doing good actually mean? I think it answers the question in a, in a very solid way <laughs> and also has a mechanism to actually do that good, which I think a lot of philosophy usually misses because um, it never quite gets there. So I, I usually think of, you know, on the extremes, there are two things. There are like philosophers who are trying to answer these questions, but don't actually do anything with them. And then there are people on the other end who do stuff all day, but they don't know what the hell they're doing. Right. And, and this is a nice balance in between those two. It's, it's right. the perfect balance for me. And this mm -hmm. is something that I've been missing, missing forever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and why? Sorry, it's a callous question, but Ooh. why is this important? I mean, why? Why do good? Uh, I mean, even on your, your LinkedIn profile, I have stalked you online, by the way, you say you're dedicated to making the world a better place. And, and, and even when you're 16, you cared about what was true or what side of the political spectrum you should be in. You know, so, so it seems like you, you seem heavily motivated to do something good. Where does that come from? Why, why, why should someone care? Hmm, that's a good question. I think there are intrinsic and extrinsic values. So I think, um, I feel like I've always been quite a rational person in a sense, not to say that I'm smart or anything like that, but I, I think very much about what's, I, I tend to be less emotional and more like, okay, well, what's actually true and try to get to the bottom of the truth. And then I'm quite in German consequent. I don't know if you can say consequent, but, um, if I, if I agree with an idea, then I, I go with it generally. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a hard time fighting, like bucking that trend or, you know, fighting the, the wave of rationality coming at me. And so I, I just feel like there's, it's really hard for, I'd be hard pressed to find an argument that says you shouldn't do good in the world or that uh, there are a lot of people suffering and you shouldn't try to alleviate that. Assuming you can, of course, there are people who are suffering themselves and can't do it or don't have the resources to do so, but I'm in a privileged position where I can. And it's, it's just logically, it's really hard for me to, to fight that argument. So I think that's one aspect. And then secondly, like more selfishly, it, it provides me with happiness to do so. I mean, I worked in these other jobs where I didn't have this meaningful aspect uh, of them and it, it felt really bad <laughs> so just for my own personal uh, satisfaction level um I think, and i actually I think doing you know, good helps again going down the, the callous narrative just because i think it's an interesting area to explore um if the main benefit the psychological benefit of doing good is what you said is is meaning or happiness then would it be a stretch to say that with founders pledge where you are offering entrepreneurs is how to buy meaning and happiness through their work. Is that a stretch or do you think that's no, actually think, a healthy way to look at it? I think that is a healthy way to look at it. And I think that people in general, going back to your lottery uh, analogy, um, people in general don't realize how meaningful helping other people can be and how like meaningless having a lot of money is. I mean, of course, it at some level, uh, it provides you security and you need a certain amount to live the life that you want to live. But beyond a certain point, it's 
it's just not important. When yeah. you're talking about successful startup founders who might make on the order of billions of dollars, I mean, the billionth dollar, going back to this analogy of the, or this theory of marginal utility again, it's not going to buy them much happiness. And it can yeah. can massively reduce suffering in the world yeah. for, for other people. So, yeah, I think you're, you're definitely right. Yeah. I mean, I have seen the graphs. I mean, what's that one study like above, I think, 60, 65,000? Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, and that's household well, income, you, I believe. Okay. But... Your, your well-being doesn't increase for an extra dollar spend of anything. It kind of plateaus. Yeah. Um, and so the bar is actually quite low to uh, have a have a rich life. Yeah. Yeah. So that level, I guess, if you want to increase your well-being, then you have to find more creative ways to do so. And I guess, you know, preventing the extinction of the species <laughs> <laughs> might make us happier, you know, from a selfish perspective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Exciting stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think that's our time. If anybody wants to get in touch with you or Founders Pledge, what is the best way to do that? You can email me at devin at founderspledge.com. Uh, as you noted, I'm on LinkedIn, so if you want to stalk me there for whatever reason. <laughs> do it. It's fun. <laughs> you can do that. Um, I'm also, I work at the factory, um, a co-working space in Berlin, uh, where there are a lot of startups. So if you happen to be a factory member, you can come tap me on the shoulder or hit me up on Slack or whatever. So, yeah. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure talking and thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Marco. It was great. Thanks again for tuning in to the Sapien podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to help us make more episodes, you can support us at Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Sapien podcast. You can also find a link in the description. See you next time.